talking and I'm not and I'm just <laughs> And then I'm talking <laughs> No, but wait, wait, I have something for him. Boom, you get shot down. Now you're just fucking me, aren't you? <laughs> I'm just wondering why all these people like kids. The Weird History and Eerie Tales Podcast. Concentrate on the news. It's what we do. Wow. <laughs> FYI, there's nothing wrong. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Weird History Eerie Tales Podcast. I am your host, Moses Soria. With me to my left is Achi. Wow. And sitting to the right of me. It's my brother Josh. Oh my gosh, it's brother Josh. Mm. Now today we are here with part three, our series fucking finale of our disgusting Albert Fish series. But wait, there's more. Well, today's it. There's no more. <laughs> but wait, we're ending this. I am so glad to stop reading about this disgusting fuck. Be honest. Have you been getting nightmares about this shit? No. No? Okay. Because you need to sleep in order for you to, you know, oh. get nightmares. <laughs> yeah, sure as fuck. It doesn't sleep. doesn't sleep at all. Yeah, it's fucking nightlife. Night owl. That's a fucking. good question, though. You do read a lot about, like, some disgusting shit. You never dreamed or have a nightmare or well, some I mean, shit nothing, like that. I mean, there's nothing that I didn't know already. Yeah. Yeah, but you're you're digging into it. You're reading more. It's in your head more. No. No, not. Hmm. Now you're like Bluebeard? Nope. Damn. There was one episode that I did dream about it, but I forgot what it was. But it wasn't any of the scary ones. Just a random one? Yeah, like some stupid ass one. <laughs> like the like a medicine one or something. Like something ridiculous. And yeah, no, I fucking Like the details in this shit, like I got I got a few nightmares. Well, it's because you're a bitch. Not gonna <laughs> lie. Not gonna lie. Right, so last we left off, Albert Fish was in police custody, and after having been just x rayed we found out that he had over 27 needles in his pelvis uh, that he himself had inserted. He was like, well, hey, we got like five in there. Yeah, and then they're like, all right, well, let's just check it. They're like, motherfucker, you had 27. <laughs> count, count to five for me, please. Not one, <laughs> not two, not three, not four, but 27. One, two, 27. So Albert Fish's murder trial was to take place in early March of 1935. So for three months, Albert Fish would read his daily newspaper to pass the time, and although he could no longer cut newspaper clippings and send dirty letters to random women, he was still given the option of writing letters to his family members and officials involved in his case. <laughs> Watch it be like, this ain't fun. Write <laughs> <laughs> to my family, fuck you. <laughs> so with nothing to do, an avalanche of letters were mailed on behalf of Fish, with a majority of them being sent out to most of his children. Albert Jr., who we learned last episode, told the media that his father could go fuck himself after his capture, was dead to Albert Fish. Albert Fish said, Jr. is not a child of mine any longer. Like, we are ignoring him. Gee. And going forward, he refused to talk about him, mention him. He did not want to talk about Jr. at all. And in a letter dated January 7th, this is what Fish wrote to his married daughter, Gertrude. What Al does, I don't care. He is no son of mine. Now, dear, if you ever do anything else for me, I want you to do this. Don't ever call your brother again. Never allow him inside your home. Teach your little ones to hate him. God 
damn, this suit's petty as fuck. He damn. is. He is butthurt. He is Just because someone's like, you know what? Fuck yourself. Yeah. So Albert's like, oh, fuck. No, fuck me. No, fuck, fuck you. you. So Fish, he would tell his other children to slam their door on Junior's face. <laughs> he was also talking spicy about his first wife. Anna. Spicy? How spicy, spicy bro? Well, we're going to find out right now. Oh, shit. Because, oh, in his, shit. because in his letters that he was sending out, uh-huh. he was blaming everyone for what had happened to him, starting with his first wife, Anna, who left him in 1917. Oh. Albert Fish being fucking petty. He petty. All I hope for, all I want to live for, is to be able to go in court that I may tell what a bitch of a mother all of you had. The kind of wife I had. In the same vein, tell old Pegleg, your bitch of a mother, that the day I go into court and take the stand will be a sorry one for her. Oh, damn. That th- that was kind of spicy, so fighting bro. Words, That's pretty bro. spicy, bro. Fighting words. It, it's up my alley with drama, son. Yeah. Look, I am, I am not one to agree with Albert no, on anything. No, I'm not agreeing. No, no, no. He's talking shit. I agree with what he's saying about his wife, as we're going to find out later on oh. why, why she left him. She is a peg leg bitch? Well, now <laughs> she, she is. a peg leg bitch? And to put the finishing touches on this blame game that Fish was playing, he was convinced okay. that the only reason he was in jail was because of his 24-year-old son, John. Albert blamed his son, John, for joining the CCC, which was the, civ- the Civilian Conservation Program, and he persisted that he wouldn't have been caught otherwise. It was only because he had to go back to get that check that he was put behind bars. True. Hey, wasn't he asking for the money? I don't blame you, my son, for my trouble but if you had not joined the CCC, I would not be here. I waited for the check until December 13th, and when I went to fetch it, I got got. So according to so, so according to Fish, he was in jail because his bitch wife left him almost 20 years ago, okay. and not because he kidnapped Grace. He was in jail because his son had to send the check a little later than usual, and that's why he was caught and sent to jail. Not because he killed Grace and butchered her body. So he was blaming everybody Everyone. for what he was, why he wasn't, for what, why he was in jail. He just didn't, he just couldn't come to terms that, well, I'm, I'm in jail because I killed this fucking little girl. Yeah, that's not why, that's not why he was in jail. He was in jail because his 24, 24 year old son. My peg like bitch. So he, my petty ass son. He's just mad because he got caught. Well, he's yeah, mad. he's mad, mad, bro. He's mad, mad. He's a sore loser. He's not, he's not mad. He's mad, mad. Oh yeah, he's mad, mad. Damn. So considering that his trial is only a few weeks away, and we now know how concerned he is with the trial's outcome, that he stressed to try and secure the best defense lawyer he could find, for a while, Fish was represented by a lawyer named Carl Hazer, and he was related to one of Fish's daughter's friends. Hmm. But Fish thought that he'd be better off being served by a local attorney, someone who was known and respected in Westchester, and the name that he kept hearing over and over and over again was James Dempsey. So after writing letters to the district attorney and letting Carl Hazer know as well that his services were not wanted, Fish got his wish and James Dempsey was now his lawyer. What? So, so Fish was like, look, I'm in Westchester. It might go well for me if I, if I was being represented by a lawyer from Westchester, have like a little, 
have like a home team thing going on. Yeah, yeah. So he so the whole time he was writing letters, he was telling his the lawyer that he was originally appointed. Carl's Hazer. Carl's Hazer, he's like, yo, I don't need you. Fuck off. Fuck off. Fuck off. Fuck off. And eventually he did fuck off and he got James Dempsey. Damn. So Dempsey now had to work hard and work fast with the nearing court date looming over them. So the first thing he did was to get two alienists opposite of the courts. Because remember, last week, the the prosecutor, they got two psychiatrists to to interview uh, Fish so they could say, so they could take out the whole insanity plan. Right, right. Well, Dempsey's like, you know what? We're going to try to do the same thing and get two alienists to prove that you are crazy. That you are crazy. So the first one they got, is, his name was Smith Eli. He was one of the country's most distinguished neurologists. He was a respected leader and figure when it came to American psychoanalysis. And he already had served as an expert in high-profile cases, making him perfectly suited to handle Fisher's case. And then the other one was Dr. Frederick Wortham, the other psychiatrist tapped to assist in the Fish case. He was a worldly scholar, having gone to schools in Germany, London, and Vienna, just to name a few. And he also authored a textbook that eventually became standard in neuropathology called The Brain as an organ. Oh, he's a scholar scholar. Mm. He's, he's also smart. smart. He's, oh, he's smart smart. He's also a piece of shit. Oh. oh. Well, not not really, but <laughs> I was like, damn surprise, motherfucker. If his name sounds familiar, Frederick Wortham's, that's because he was the fucking guy that campaigned against the comics, which led to Congress creating the comics code of authority, which is basically a censorship of the comics medium. What? Yeah, so today in the like like the uh, comics are censored, right? So you can't put certain things on the covers. You can't have certain things inside the book, and it's because of this guy is during the fifties. This is when everyone's trying to blame rock and roll. He was uh. trying to make a name for himself and doing all this shit. So out of the four alienists that spent time with Fish, Wortham came to know Albert the best, spending over twelve hours with him while no one spent more than a total of three. So while spending time with Fish. Fish let Wortham know that he might be suffering from psychological problems. Would you spend 12 hours with me? How much am I getting paid? <laughs> you ain't going to be shit. Just 12 free hours with I this just, guy. I'm just like, I'm doing the three. <laughs> <laughs> Minimum three in a mile. I do not think I am altogether right. My actions, desires... I don't understand them or myself. It is up to you to find out what is wrong with me. So after learning that Fish might be claiming to not be a hunted when it came to his <laughs> mental health, he got busy and started investigating every single detail of Fish's life, his perverted fantasies, and his sexual history. There was no known perversion that Fish did not practice and practice frequently. Fish's depravities have been fueled by a single monstrous need, an unappeasable lust for pain. I always had a desire to inflict pain on others and to have others inflict pain on me. I always seemed to enjoy everything that hurt. The desire to inflict pain, that is all that is uppermost.
So Fish also let Wortham know of something pretty fucking significant that he'd been keeping close to the chest. Fish told Wortham that after decapitating Grace Bud, he had tried drinking her blood from the five-gallon paint can he had shoved under her neck. Oh, shit. The warm blood had made him choke, and he stopped drinking after the third gulp. Oh, the third gulp. Then, Thanks for the reenactment. <laughs> yeah, I got you, I got you, I got you. Then he had taken his double-edged knife and sliced about four pounds of flesh from her breast, butt, and abdomen. Also taking the ears and nose, he wrapped the meat in a piece of old newspaper and carried them back to his room. Albert Fish was so fucking horny riding the train, knowing he had pieces of human meat sitting on his lap, that he just randomly nutted in the train station. Is that he, his uh, super uh, <laughs> superpower? You could just nut instantly. <laughs> Let me guess. He sound like this. <sighs> there you go. There you go. That's a shit. <laughs> he just randomly had an orgasm, just thinking about what that he had the fucking human flesh. Little did anyone know. So back in his room, he cut Grace's flesh into smaller chunks and used them to make a stew. And it took him over nine days to finish the stew. And he took his time eating Grace, getting as much pleasure out of it. During those nine days, Fish was beyond horny. He was so horny that he was stuck in a constant state of sexual arousal, as he put it. He was always beating his meat. Always. And that night, he would just lie in bed, in the dark, savoring the lingering taste of Grace's flesh while he masturbated to sleep. When Fish wanted to smoke, he would have to hand over the cigarette to a guard, and the guard would have to light it for him. But Fish kept bugging them and complaining, why couldn't he light his own fucking cigarette? So one of the guards got suspicious of Albert acting like a hoe over a lighter. He's like, dude, why are you tripping over this fucking lighter? Listen up, bitch boy. I saw you fucking 24 needles up your ass. So they searched his cell, and they found a box of absorbent cotton balls and a bottle of alcohol. Fish had told Wortham and Detective King that he liked to soak the pieces of cotton in alcohol, stinking them up his ass, and setting them on fire. And that's when the guard says, that's why. So Fish also mentioned that he'd done the same a few times when he tortured children. Sometimes he gagged them while he did it, but for the most part, he liked hearing them scream. As his trial was getting nearer, Fish was starting to feel the pressure of it all. And for the majority of the day, he could have found Albert on his knees begging God to save him. God wasn't the only person he was begging to. I am willing to turn myself over to science as a human guinea pig in exchange for a life sentence. Humanity will profit more by study of my brain and body than by sending me to the electric chair. Fish was asking the district attorney for a life sentence over the death sentence. 
but he was told to go fuck himself. And that as long as he was still breathing, he was still going to be a threat. Damn. So the night before his trial, Fish started to tear into his chest and ribs with a chicken bone that he sharpened. What the fuck? The guards and the warden rushed to his cell and wrestled the bone away from him. The newspapers got a hold of the incident and started reporting that he was stopped from committing suicide. But one of them and the warden knew this was no suicide attempt. This was an act of autoeroticism. A long overdue nut from being in jail for so long. A long overdue nut. He's like, I can't get my ass on fire, so I guess I'll poke myself. So on March 11th, 1935, over 300 people, mostly women, jammed the hallways outside the courtroom trying to get admitted in. No standees were allowed in the courtroom. At the front of the courtroom, there was a big press table packed with representatives from newspapers. From the witness stand, Fish will recite the story of his life, admitting atrocities not surpassed by even that story of terror and bloodlust, Dracula. He will make his hair raising confessions to save his own miserable life. So the first day it ended on a low note with the day spent interviewing over 70 people to find the nine they needed to fill up the jury. So on the morning of Tuesday of March 12th, the Daily News published the first part of the five-part series of Albert's autobiography that we talked about on, on the last episode, which was then obviously rewritten for some added flair. Of course. The thing that started me on the real big things I have done the last 15 years was the trouble I had with my first wife. Marriage is not all that is cracked up to be, but it certainly serves one purpose. So long as a man and woman keep the bargain, they will both stay out of trouble. It is a good safety valve. But when I found out about her infidelity, my eyes were open to the fact that no bargains hold and that only fools know any restraint. That freed me. I had a right after that to any fun I could find or grab. I am a man of passion. You don't know what that means unless you are my kind. At the orphanage where they put me just before Garfield was assassinated, there were some older boys that caught a horse in a sloping field. They got the horse up against the fence, down at the bottom of the field, and tied him up. They put kerosene on the old horse's tail and lit it up and cut the rope. And away went the old horse, busting through fences to get away from the fire. But the fire went with him. That horse, that's me. That's the man of passion. The fire chases you and catches you, and then it's in your blood. And after that, it's the fire that has control, not the man. Blame the fire of passion for what Albert H. Fish has done. Motherfucker. That's pretty fucking deep. He's like, yeah, I'm the fucking horse. That last, that last passage of that whole horse thing, no one knows if it is actually a childhood memory or just something out of Fish's imagination. Mm. But regardless if it was real or not, it had a symbolic meaning to Fish 
and he did associate himself with that horrible image of the horse on fire, an animal propelled to the world by the burning sexual frenzy of pain. So finally, Gallagher started to lay out the state's case against Fish, speaking in a somber, modulated voice, like I try to do when I'm about to go into a transition. He started to draw out the details of the crime. It sounded less than a legal procedure and more like a story you could have read back then in a pulp horror magazine like Weird Tales or Eerie Mysteries. Fun fact, these two pulp magazines is why we have the name of our show. I used to, I'm a huge fan of like those old school magazines and that's where I got the name of the show. There's, the, there's a Weird Tales magazine, there's an Eerie Mysteries magazine. So I was like, I try to combine a bunch of those words together, and that's how I came up with the Weird History. Weird History on Eerie Tales Podcast. So everyone was hanging on Gallagher's every word as he was getting into the Bud's family story and under what circumstances they met Albert Fish. Everyone except Fish's lawyer. Dempsey, who after a few moments sprang up from the chair and cut Gallagher mid-sentence. Your honor, please. I'm going to object to the dramatics on the part of the district attorney. He is supposed to outline what he intends to prove, sir. So right now, the defense, the prosecutor, Gallagher, he's trying to paint this story. He's trying to sound, and he's, so he's trying to sound sad. Yeah. And Dempsey's like, yo, 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 this ain't fucking story time. Say what the fuck you want to prove and keep it moving. Hey, low-key, I wish that's how it was for my last fucking jury trial that I did whole fucking month waste of my time it was all story time it was all story time i had jury duty like a few days ago like my mail came in yeah. but because it's covid they just canceled it ah! and i just reported and i reported it and i said due to covid19 there are no open cases so you're dirty so you're done for the year why the fuck i even said to you hell yeah <laughs> i was like fucking... cool hell yeah Shh. i haven't responded in mine <laughs> hey Yo, you're going to cut this shit out, son. <laughs> you're going to cut it out, son. I'm from the streets, son. <laughs> so the judge agreed when Dempsey told him to cut the shit, and Gallagher cut the shit and went got to the point. He really cut the shit. Gallagher immediately went into lining out the events leading up to the capture of Fish, from Detective King's 50,000-mile manhunt to the sad but kind of funny story involving poor Charles Edward Pope to the infamous My Dear Letter that Fish sent to the buds. Damn. Gallagher summarized the letter, but described the murder in vivid detail and the authorities searched for Grace's body back at the Wisteria Cottage. He said he knew what he was doing. He said that he knew it was wrong to kill and that after he'd done so, he felt guilty. He knew it was a commandment that he had broken, thou shall not kill. Now in this case, the proof briefly will be that, that this defendant is legally sane and that he knows the difference between right and wrong. That there is no mental deterioration, but that he is sexually abnormal. That he is known as a sex pervert or a sex psychopath. That his acts were abnormal. So it was clear that Dempsey, if he wanted to win this case, he had to start by having Fish be disassociated with these gothic monsters that the media was portraying him out to be. So he began from the get-go with this quote. We do not have to prove that he is insane. Rather, it was up to the state to prove that he is sane. Nevertheless, the defense will offer proof, overwhelming proof, to demonstrate conclusively 
beyond a shadow of a doubt that that man was insane in 1928 and is insane today. So that was going to be the whole case. Dempsey's like, look, I'm going to prove that this that Albert crazy. Fish is crazy. And if he's crazy, you can't not give him the death sentence. You can't right. say he's guilty. Mm-hmm. You, right. get, you could say he's not guilty, but he did what he did and they're going to send him to a mental hospital. Right. Gallagher, the prosecutors, no, no, no. This motherfucker knew what he was doing. He knew the difference between right and wrong, which means he's sane. So that's the whole, that's going to be the whole fight between Dempsey and Gallagher. The defense is going to try to prove that he is going to be, that, he, that Albert Fish is insane, while the prosecutor, prosecution is going to try to prove that he is sane. So they're not even focused on the killings anymore. They're just focusing on his mental state. Exactly. So Dempsey, he went the opposite route that Gallagher did. Instead of trying to pull the heartstrings of any juror with a dramatization account of the murder, Dempsey went straight into Fish's fucked up history. He summarized Fish's brutalized childhood and described Fish as having been in a constant state of mental depreciation. Dempsey detailed the tortures Fish had inflicted on himself with the paddles and his compulsive habit of sending his unspeakable letters. Sticking to his legal plan of trying to shit on Bellevue Hospital in order to discredit the two alienists' prognosis of Fish being sane, he blamed Bellevue, who had diagnosed Fish as harmless. He didn't waste a second in placing the blame on them for releasing Fish in 1931. So the same alienist that that proved that he was good is from this hospital. They're from the Bellevue Hospital. Damn. So he's like, so he's like, in order for me, so, like, so he's like, not only am I gonna prove that he is insane, I'm gonna prove that you guys are fucking shitty for letting them fucking go from Bellevue. Mm-hmm. In that year, that Bellevue turned him out as not being a criminal. He married three other women outside his own wife without ever getting a divorce. Three different marriages in that year after Bellevue let him go. At the end of the year, he was again apprehended for sending those obscene letters through the mail. Bellevue has a lot to account for here, I submit. So Dempsey's defense plan was to attack Bellevue and to try to prove Fish as a quote-unquote paradoxical human being. So Dempsey brought up the letters and the contents to provide context to Albert's perversion. Then he would go and speak about his devotion to his children, that he did everything for them, and that despite all the brutal macabreness that Albert would get into, he had another side of him, the side of a very fine father. And so I frankly say to you, I have only scratched the surface. The defense is going to raise a question as to whether in June 1928, Albert Fish was sane. We will have to lay witnesses and we will have very competent and learned medical witnesses to address that point. Although I repeat as I close my brief remarks that it is incumbent upon the prosecution to show that this murder where this little girl they say was killed, cut up, and Eden was committed by a sane man. So Mrs. Budd took the stand, dressed in black, and she told the story of what happened on June 3rd, 1928, and pointed to Albert Fish after Gallagher had asked her if the man that came to her home that day was in the courtroom. I'm laughing she points at a random man. <laughs> 
No, well, I mean, she pointed at fish. So Gallagher's like, excuse me, Mrs. Bud. It's the man who walked into your house and took great. What's the family behind her, like, pointing at him? Like, this guy. Well, that's what, so that's, so that's what Dempsey jumped on right now. Oh, when Dempsey was cross-examining her, that's what he, that's exactly what he jumped on. Motherfucker. So now it was Dempsey's turn. And when he cross-examined her, so Dempsey then cross-examined her. And he immediately brought up her misidentification of earlier suspects. Dempsey asked her if she had ID'd Charles Pope as Frank Howard. She responded that yes, but it was a mistake. Then asking her how many different people has she misidentified as Frank Howard. She responded saying that it was only Mr. Pope. Do you remember a lineup one day at the police station, Mrs. Bud, when you picked out one of the New York detectives and said that he was Frank Howard? So Mrs. Bud, she replied with a stern no and then just turned her head, facing away from Dempsey. <laughs> and she refused to reply to any more of Dempsey's questions. He kept asking, he's like, oh, do you remember when you misidentified this guy? She had her turn. She kept bringing it up, but she wasn't answering anything. Until he asked this one last question. Mrs. But before you leave, you objected to your daughter going with Frank Howard, right? No, we trusted the old man. We thought he was all right. Who was the one that consented? We both consented. So Edward Budd was next on the stand with Willie Corman falling right after. They both told their accounts of what happened that night and the testimony was short and to the point. Mr. Budd, on the other hand, he was a different story entirely. While taking the stand, you could tell he was visibly upset, and he spoke with a shaky voice as he talked about the day his grace was taken. He asked me would I give permission, consent, me and Mrs. Bud to let the child go and attend that party that he would take a very good care of her, and he would return her no later than 9 o'clock. So Gallagher asked Mr. Bud if he had indeed given him consent, and Mr. Bud answered with a yes. Then he was asked if he could identify Albert Fish. Mr. Bud then told the court that his eyesight wasn't that good and that his glass eye prevented him from seeing very far. So he walked toward the defense table and stopped in front of Albert Fish's chair. This is Frank Howard. This is the man who took my child away. This man right here. He then covered his face with both hands and began to sob loudly. Both Gallagher and Dempsey heard the pain in Mr. Bud's cries. That Dempsey, the defendant's lawyer, Albert Fish's lawyer, he asked the court for a short recess so that Mr. Bud could be excused and rest. Damn. That's how he's playing it smart. He's playing it smart. So our big dick detective, William King, was the last witness that afternoon. He described exactly how he managed to track down Fish and arrest him on December 13th, 1934. When it was Dempsey's turn to examine King, he tried to force him to admit that Fish's confession came from only after being beaten with a rubber hose. But King denied any such wrongdoing and said he didn't do anything to Fish to get his confession. It was a few minutes before 5 p.m. when the judge recessed the court for the day. King was back on the stand the very first thing the next morning, Wednesday, March 14th, and he remained there the rest of the day. He started by talking about the confession that Fish had made after he got arrested, which was a far more brutal account than the one Gallagher had given during his opening statement. So Dempsey's cross-examination of King 
he zeroed in on the issue that he was clinging his insanity defense on. Cannibalism. It was obvious as hell that Dempsey wanted King to admit that Fish did, without a shadow of a doubt, cut off and ate the meat of Grace Bud. Now listen up, big dick. Oh, all right. Did you have a talk with Mr. Fish about that reference in that particular letter, sir? Yes, sir. And what did he tell you about that? He said that I had a brother who was in the Navy, and he would tell him tales of famines in the Far East and other things that he had witnessed. In other words, he said to you, substantially, that he heard that children in China were sold for food? Yes, his brother told him. Did he tell you, sir, that ever since 1894, he heard about this human flesh in China? That that had been on his mind? No, sir. Did he tell you, sir, that he wanted to eat human flesh and it had been an obsession with him for years and years? No, sir. Did he tell you that he talked about it a number of times? No, sir. Did he tell you that he had read other books with respect to cannibalism and other things? He said he had read on this. Dempsey then continued to ask about, you know, the rest of the letter. He started asking King about Fish's description of his visit to the Bud's home, his first time seeing Grace, the lie about his niece's birthday party, the trip to Westchester, Grace's death in the old Wisteria Cottage. He was trying to get everything out of King. Mm. So Dempsey then asked if all those points in the letter and they had been confirmed by other evidence. King said that they had been. And then Dempsey's strategy became clear as day. He asked King if every single statement that Fish had made in that letter had been proven one way or another to be true. King said yes. Then he said, then isn't it reasonable to assume that he had also been telling the truth about making Grace's meat into a stew? King didn't flinch. Oh, shit. And he maintained that Fish did not perform any cannibalism on Grace's body. Dempsey then dropped the bomb on King. Didn't he tell you, sir, that the reason he put the pell under the girl's head when he cut it off was to get the blood? Yes. Didn't he say that after he caught the blood, he took a few gulps of the blood? No, he didn't. He said he threw the pell out the window onto the lawn. He made no mention of having used Grace's blood himself. Mr. King, you interviewed a few of the fish's children, correct? Four of them. Did you find out from any of his children about any unusual tendencies of this defendant with respect to the meat he ate? Immediately, the prosecutor Gallagher, he jumped out of his seat and objected to the question. I object, your honor. He called it an irrelevant material. Why the fuck are you bringing it up? Dempsey then rephrased the question and he flat out asked the king. Did you find out he liked to eat raw meat? Gallagher again, he objected to the question. Fuck you. <laughs> but King silence. <laughs> Objection! Fuck you. <laughs> but, oh shit! Comedy. But King's silence was all Dempsey needed. Damn. Oh, got Co- him good. Court was recessed for the day. The next morning, Thursday, May fourteenth, was just spent trying to establish if the pile of bones were of Grace's. Doctors Harry Struzer and Abraham Well, they both agreed that the skull found back at the Wisteria Cottage was Grace's. Damn. And they came to the conclusion that thanks to the pattern of the skull's molar development, which was consistent with that of a young girl. 
The rest of the day was spent in presenting Fish's confession. Prosecutor Gallagher read each of the statements to the jury over Dempsey's objections, which once again led Dempsey and the judge to have a heated back and forth. This was because Dempsey's insanity was suffering after the confessions, since Fish had said he felt the feeling of remorse, while another clearly showed that Fish knew the difference between right and wrong. So now it's Friday, and by noon, the state had rested its case. They had brought up a professor, Dudley Morton, who was brought in to testify that the bones had been of those of a young female individual. Dempsey called his first witness to the stand, Albert Fish Jr., and he switched up his tactic. Throughout the trial, everything had been focused on the Bud crime. The confessions, the letters, everything was con- everything was focused on the Bud crime. Right. But starting with Albert Jr., and for the next few days, Dempsey would begin to take everyone in the courthouse on a wild ride. One not as straightforward as Gallagher's tracing of the Bud crime. Dempsey jumped around from witness to witness to year to year to show, as reporters called it, an expedition into the dizzying blackness of Albert Fish's mind, a trip that was truly a descent into Maelstrom. Albert Jr. took the stand and immediately started recalling the time he had spotted his father yelling, I am Christ. Remember that one episode? I am Christ! Beowulf! (laughs) Beowulf! Yeah, I remember that. I remember that movie. So then he spoke about the time that he caught his father whipping himself in his room with the nail-studded paddle. He also talked about the time he found the bloody paddles hidden behind the kitchen sink. Then he spoke Then he spoke about the needles. Oh, boy. Albert Jr. spoke about his father's horrible habit of shoving needles into himself and how he first learned about it from his younger brother, John, who had seen the father do it first in 1925. Dempsey then asked Albert Jr. if he mentioned it to his father. And Albert Jr. nodded yes. I asked my father who used the needles and he said he did. He told me he would get certain feelings that came over him and every time he would have to go into the bedroom or someplace and stick those needles into his body. Albert Jr. also told the story about a black cat that his father was only able to see. And it drove him insane. So insane that he tried to catch this imaginary cat by filling the basement floor of the apartment they supervised with booby traps. <laughs> he also told Dempsey about his father's eating raw meat in 1934. I came home with the intention of having a good supper. It was payday. I got home and sat down to eat. As I did, I noticed a piece of raw steak and a box of biscuits. I asked my father, is that all we had for our supper? And he said yes. He told me that he liked his meat raw and liked to eat it that way. After Albert Fish, Dr. Roy took the stand, the doctor who had supervised Fish's pelvic x-rays. Two months later, after the original session of of Fish's x-rays, Dr. Roy brought another set of x-rays, which revealed that since then... They found more needles in fish. So this was after the fact? Bringing up his total to 29 needles. He should have two more. Where, where the fuck did he get these two needles? Oh. Nobody knows. 
He pointed out the location of each of the needles. If there was needles in the groin, close to the back wall of the rectum, slightly above the colon, near the bladder, and a few clustered around the spine. Oh my God. Dr. Roy also pointed out some needles had been in fish for a few years considering how corroded they were. The last witness of the day was Fish's favorite child. She began telling the story of when her mother left the family, how she gave all six children money to go to the movies and then dipped while they weren't home and then moved to White Plains. Dempsey then asked Gertrude. And from that time on until the children were married or grew up, what did your father do with respect to the children? He always went to work and provided for them. He was very good. Did your father ever strike you? Never. Did he ever strike any of the children? Never. What did your father say to the children if they struck any animals? Oh, he would say not to do that in fear that we might hurt the poor little dog. So eventually she told the story how their mother reached out to the family and asked if she could come back after she had deserted them. And she did. But a week later, the man she left with came by looking for her. <laughs> and she invited him to secretly live in the house with her. What? He lived in the attic while she was with Fish again. The family didn't know. And Fish had no idea until he found out. And then, after Fish told him to get the fuck out of the house... Anna told Albert that if he kicked that if he was kicked out, she was gonna go with him. So Fish showed her the door and she left once again, this time for good. Listen, you peg like bitch. So, so now, see, so now you understand why fucking Albert hated her. All right, all right, right. Respect. So, so the, so basically, Fish went to work, and when he went to work, Anna gave all six of his children his money, go to the movies. They went to the movies. And she fucked off with her lover. Yep. So the kids came back. They're like, hey. Where's uh, mama? Mama. Not, not only did she leave, but remember, she left with everything in the house. She she left him no furniture. Remember how he said that they had to sleep on yeah, the floor? Yeah. Well, Fish like, oh, fuck. Well, let's move over. Well, let's move closer to my family, to one of my sisters. So he did. He moved over to White Plains. Yeah. Then eventually, the mom f- tracked him down. And she's like, hey, can I come back? And she did. But then a week later... The man she ran away with came back asking her to come back with him. to him. Yeah. And she said, look, why don't you just go live in the attic and we're going to be Gucci. And then Fish found out and Fish like, look, he has to get the fuck out. And then Anna's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you kick him out, then I'm going to go too. <laughs> You're like, fuck out of here. So Fish like, go fuck yourself. And he did. So now it's 445 and the judge recessed the trial for the weekend and the murder trial of Albert Fish had finally reached its midpoint. So up to this point, the trial of Albert Fish had been one shocking moment after another. From Albert's multiple accounts of Grace's murder to the minute details like Fish drinking Grace's blood after dismembering her, adding gore to an already ghastly murder. But it wasn't until the sixth day of the trial that things were going to ramp up. So much so that the judge ordered to ban all female spectators from the courtroom. What? It's Monday now, and the courtroom is beginning to hear about Fish's sexual nature from first-hand witnesses. So Dempsey read a letter to the jury that Fish had written to a Gray Shaw. 
a married middle-aged wife and mother who placed an ad in the New York Times offering her services as a caretaker. So Fish obviously jumped at the opportunity to respond to the ad. In the letter, he wrote about his disabled son, Bobby, who would get cranky and would need spankings, you know, something we've heard mm-hmm. over and over again, which was the standard for Fish's letters. But in this instance, Mrs. Shaw actually wrote back to Fish, stating that she had spoken to her 20-year-old daughter and they both agreed that they would be willing to take care of Bobby in the style Hayden, which was Fish's alias in this instance, had described. So Fish and Mrs. Shaw had a back and forth when it came to writing letters. The more he wrote, the more perverted the letters would get. (laughs) He wrote her regularly, and sometimes even twice a day. Mm, Twice. Each time more detailing the punishments Bobby required. But according to Mrs. Shaw's testimony, she was simply just playing along with Fish until she had enough evidence that she could go to the authorities with. So because of this, she made Fish believe he had found his, like, mom, daddy, or mommy, dom, I don't know how you want to call it, of his wet dreams. Like, finally, I found my dominatrix. Eventually, they agreed to meet. But Fish decided not to show up. At least not as Hayden. The man who was writing the letters. But as James Pell. A friend of Hayden, which he introduced in a previous letter. When they arrived at her home, Fish asked about her husband's whereabouts, and she responded that he was just out running some errands and would be back within an hour. After introducing James Pell to her daughter, the daughter went to go prepare some coffee, and then Fish handed Mrs. Shaw a paper-wrapped package and a letter. In the package was a length of rope that had been soaked in salt water, and the letter contained detailed instructions on how to use the rope when whipping James Pell. Mr. Pell, there is no reason why I should have to whip you. You are not a patient of mine. Were I to do such a thing and you drop dead, I would be charged for murder. So, all right. This is, so this is, this part's fucking crazy. So, Albert's writing letters to Mrs. Shaw. Right. And they're like, we're going to meet. She's Mm -hmm. like, okay. He was writing the letters as Hayden. So, she's like, all right, Hayden, let's meet up and talk about it. Let's go. Trying to get a job. So, Fish showed up, but he didn't show up as Hayden. He was James Pell. He showed up as James Pell. I'm the dude playing the dude acting as a dude. Exactly. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he showed up as James Pell, who was Hayden's mentally disabled friend. What? And so she's like, who the, who the fuck are you? He's like, oh, he's like, like, oh, I'm Pell. Yeah. And she's like, oh, I thought I was being Hayden. He's like, no, no, no. You, you're meeting me today. Yeah. yeah. It's like, the fuck? Like, okay. Let's go back to my house and we'll talk about it. That's why he gave her the letter. Right. Albert Fish had the balls and he was so horny that he showed up as a dude playing another dude like my brother mentioned hoping to get whipped and not only hoping he had detailed instructions of how he wanted to get whipped and he brought the rope for her to do it with ma'am i'm gonna need you to read this uh in detail (laughs) out loud please she did and she's like nah this ain't happening so she let him finish his coffee and immediately after he left she made copies of all the letters and mailed them to the New York Times. Fish wasn't stupid and he caught on. And he stopped replying to her once she invited him over for Thanksgiving. He never showed up, which was a good thing for him, considering the police and investigators were waiting to arrest him. Damn. Oh, boy. This day was full of weird sexual testimonies 
all from people who had come in contact with fish. Helen Carlson was a landlady who rented a room to fish in 1927. He would slip letters under the room asking her to tar and feather him and then help him remove it. If she did, he would pay her double his rent. She eventually kicked him out and she found not only his blood-nailed studded paddles, but she also found a little mess he left behind. Fish took a shit and he left it behind the door. But things took a weird, weird turn when a Mary Nicholas took the stand. The 17-year-old daughter of one of Fish's three wives that he had married. A stepchild? Stepchild. A stepchild that he called his stepkitty. Oh, God. No. A stepkitty that he promised her that when she turned 18, she would get 18 good heart smacks on her bare behind for her birthday. She was 12 years old when Fish married into her family, and it only took the second night after moving in for him to start making shit weird and gross. Mary described the games he was starting to teach them and explained how the games were played. Oh no. He went into his room and he had a little pair of trunks, brown trunks, that he would put on. He took everything off except these brown trunks. He would get down on his hands and knees and he had a paint stick that he stirred paint with. He would give the stick to one of us and then he would get down on his hands and knees and we would sit on his back, one at a time with our backs facing him and then we would put up our fingers showing a number of fingers. He was to guess the number of fingers we were holding up and if he guessed right, which he never did, we wouldn't hit him but when he guessed wrong, we were supposed to hit his behind the same amount of fingers we held up. And how long would you play that game? We wouldn't play it very long, just about an hour every night. Did you play any other games with fish? Yes, we had a game called Sack of Potatoes Over, where he would throw us up on his shoulders and we would slide down and scratch him with our nails as we came down. By the time we were done playing, his back would be red. These are the kind of preferred games he was what playing the with. Fuck? And he was, by this point, he was like, maybe in his 50s. Yeah. Imagine a 50-year-old man, but na- almost completely naked, skinny naked, with only like little, sh- sh- little short shorts. Short shorts. It's like, how many fingers do you have up? Five. All right. Smack me with those five fingers. Whoa. The thing was, he would, lay out, he, he would be on his knees, and they would sit on him facing his ass. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So they were supposed to hold up fingers. Yeah. And he was supposed to guess. Yeah. If he guessed right, they wouldn't hit him. Oh, they wouldn't hit him. They wouldn't hit him. They wouldn't hit him. But if he guessed wrong, he'll get hit. He would get hit by the same amount he would have his fingers up. So he's he was almost always wrong. He was always wrong cuz in the like in the book she described most of the time he would he would call numbers that is like he would call numbers yeah 17 yeah, yeah. 27 yeah <laughs> yeah like that oh you don't have 27 fingers okay yeah, so she's like no i only had six. Oh boy i lost again so she's so already sitting on his back they'll just they'll just hit him with the fucking that little paint stir stick that they give you at home depot 
So Mary would go on to mention that he tried to trick her and her siblings into sticking needles underneath his fingernails as a game. Oh, shit. But they refused to play along. When the children were busy or not in the mood to play, Mary explained that Fish would go into the restroom and grab as much toilet paper as he could, set it down in the middle of the living room, and just set it on fire. What the fuck? He did this almost every night. Every night. And nobody thought any of this shit was fucking weird. He was playing these games with these children. The mom, she didn't think it was weird. He, he was just taking toilet paper, putting it in the living room, just lighting it on fire. Up. Nobody said anything. Just no like, reason? Oh. There goes fish. Well, because remember, he was, a, he was a pyromaniac. So he just wanted, if he, couldn't, if he couldn't get his boner off some way, he'd do it another way. Yeah. And he would just do whatever the fuck he could. Sorry, Dude, I can picture that. Just an old, skinny man. Burning up towards it's the really like some sort of fucking scene of hereditary or some shit. Oh boy. So the weirdness continued when Fish's own children took the stand. And they described how Fish once tried for three days to fill some cracks in the front stoop of the house by pouring uncooked oatmeal down them. <laughs> One of his daughters told the story how in 1917 she woke up in the middle of the night to get a glass of water. And she found Fish on the floor rolled up in the living room carpet. So tight that only his head was visible. Can't burrito? Like some sort of fucking dusty, bare-ass burrito. <laughs> the next morning as she was coming down for breakfast, Fish was just starting to unroll himself the from fuck? the car. He fell asleep like this. Wait, you guys never fell asleep, rolled up as a little dusty-ass burrito? <laughs> <laughs> Shit, you get some good night's sleep. Now I see why you have a carpet in your room, bro. You know it. The bed is not really my bed, bro. My bed is under that. Shit. I know your 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 bed is like completely like clean and neat. Mm-hmm. That carpet is kind of dusty. <laughs> <laughs> kind of dusty. The next day, Tuesday, March nineteenth, the psychiatric testimonies began, and Frederick Wortham took the stand and stayed there until the following morning. It wasn't until Doctor Wortham's testimony that Fish's horrible bottomless pit of madness was truly put on display. Dr. Wortham, which, which was one of Dempsey's alienists who was trying to help Dempsey prove that Albert Fish was insane, he explained that Fish's sexual history stretched over 50 years. And it was hard to keep track of everything that he had going on. Before Wortham started his story, the judge once again ordered all the women to leave the courtroom. Twelve jurors who had began to become numb to the testimonies against Fish began to recoil and looked visibly upset throughout the story. Wortham began by describing Fish's family history. In two generations alone, which was Fish's brothers and sisters and his uncles and aunts, he discovered seven cases of extreme psychopathology, including an uncle who suffered from religious psychosis, a half-brother who was confined to a state hospital for the insane, a younger brother who died of hydrocephalus, and a sister who had a mental affliction, and then Fish's mother who was very queer and would hear and see things. This was just in his immediate family. That's hard to like prove otherwise that you know Fish isn't part of that. Yeah, right. Part and of the list, yeah. The crazy part is that he had that Fish... Had six brothers and sisters from his mom's side. Right. 
from his dad's side, there was 12 of them. Oh, shit. So he had another six stepbrothers and sisters. Uh-huh. Remember, his dad was 75 when he had fish. Right, yeah. Right. He was old as fuck. Crusty, man. Was it shooting blanks, though? He was uh, the old man from Family Guy. Oh. Fish's father was 70 fucking five when he had him. And the only memory he had of his father was of one where he called Fish a stick in the mud. You're a piece of shit. Fish's father died when he was five, and he was immediately shipped off to the St. John's Orphanage in Washington, D.C., where it was nothing less than a nightmare factory for Albert Fish, a brutal place where Fish was introduced to crimes and quote-unquote Routine depravities, as he would say. It was during his time here where Fish learned to associate pleasure and pain. Dr. Wortham explains. Now, his experience in the orphanage is very important because he dates his earliest sexual abnormalities to this time. He described to me very vividly that in that place, not only did the inmates commit all sorts of sensory acts with each other, in which he joined, but it made the greatest impression on him. One of the guardians there, a sister or a teacher, had the habit of frequently whipping the boys and taking six at a time and having them strip and having one see what happened to the others. And he remembers very vividly seeing the other boys whipped and he recalls that before the age of seven, he had his first sexual feeling. A feeling he got from being whipped and from seeing other boys getting whipped and screaming. Wortham continued saying that as a young child, Fish showed a number of neurotic traits, like bedwetting till he was 11. He was also such a high-strung and sensitive kid growing up. An example that he gave to the courtroom was that of his name. Fish's legal name is Hamilton Fish. What? But the kids would make fun of him for it. And they would call him Ham and Eggs instead of Hamilton. And Fish couldn't stand it. Which led to Fish adopting the name Albert. Which was actually the name of his baby brother who had died of a brain disease. Oh. Wortham at this point asserted that the fact of Fish's life was that Fish was the first person in Wortham's professional career having knowledge of every sexual abnormality the fish not only thought about them and dreamt about them, but that he also practiced them. Wortham called fish a sadist of extreme cruelty, a horrible piece of shit, that fish's mind was programmed on only bringing out the pain in people. He also claimed that fish was a homosexual, and that the women in his life were merely substitutes for his surface life. Wortham claimed that, that of all the fish's abnormalities, one of the biggest ones that plagued Fish was that he was a pedophile. That all of Fish's sexual encounters had mainly been with children from the age of about 5 through 16. One of them had a Dempsey a list of 17 paraphilias or perversions that Fish practiced. But one of them only needed to focus on the three main ones of Fish's life. His pedophilia, his homosexuality, and the sadism. He started his sexual career at the age of 17, at the time he became a painter, a profession that he used as a convenience. He worked for many different institutions. He'd worked for YMCA's, homes for tuberculosis patients. He worked in any kind of home where there were children, 
where he thought he could get children. In all these places, he made his base camp the basement or cellars, and he had the habit of wearing a painter's overalls with nothing underneath, which gave him two advantages. First, he was nude at a moment's notice, and secondly, if he was seen with his victim, he was only seen in his painter's clothes, and he was virtually unrecognizable outside of those overalls. As Wortham continued to speak, Fish was transformed into a prowler in the darkness, a creature emerging from darkness to snatch his young prey. This man has roamed around in basements and cellars for 50 years. There are so many instances that I can't begin to give you how many victims there are. But I believe to the best of my knowledge that Mr. Albert Fish has raped 100 children at the very least. What the fuck? At the very Minimum. least. Minimum. Wortham explained that after each child, he would just move cities unless it was a brutal one, which then he would just move states. In his life, Fish had been to at least 23 states each state being home to countless of children that fell to him. Wortham then looked to the judge to let him know that Fish's story was going to get worse as he went along. Judge Close gave him the okay. Wortham went on to say that Fish had been a homosexual prostitute as a boy who stood around on corners and went with other men for money. As a young man in his 20s, he made a trip to Brussels where he visited brothels that specialized in flagellation, which was self-harm for sexual release, and other sadomasochistic acts. Fish would practice oral on the rectums of men and women that was really into urine. Once he returned to America, he practiced all of these things on his child victims. If that wasn't horrible enough, Fish's interest in the children was not to have sex with them, but to inflict as much pain as he possibly could Fish had kept a cutter boy in his shack in Washington for a number of weeks. He, uh, he undressed the boy, took his clothes away, and kept him as his prisoner. He intended to kill the boy, but for whatever reason, it didn't work out in Fish's favor. Another instance, Fish had taken another young boy, bound him, and whipped him violently on both sides of his body. Fish eventually let his victim go, but the boy's genitals were bleeding so bad that Fish became frightened and left the city. The most horrific incident of all that Wortham told that day took place in 1911. Fish was 41 years old and was living in St. Louis. Keaton, a handsome but slow 19-year-old boy, had bummed his way from the south by train. There had been five black men in the boxcar with him, and the six of them spent the trip engaging sexual acts of fellatio and homosexuality. Somehow, Fish convinced the boy to go home with him. The boy was covered in lice, and once at Fish's home, he was stripped of all the hair on his body, and for the next three weeks, they had a mutual sadistic and masochistic relationship. He had the boy whip him and urinate on him. Fish drank the boy's urine and ate his feces, and then forced the boy to do the same. As continued on with their relationship, the games began to get more brutal. At one point, Fish cut the boy's buttocks with a razor blade Ooh. and tried to drink the blood. Eventually, Fish tied the boy up and began to cut off the boy's penis with scissors. But before he could finish the job, but before he could finish the job, Fish had a change of heart. The boy had such an agonized look on his face that Fish couldn't stand it. Binding the wound, 
Fish left a $10 bill on the bed for the mutilated boy and ran away to another city. <laughs> Sorry, man. One of them paused and looked around the courtroom while the jurors and most spectators looked visibly shaken and upset. Some readjusted themselves as they were on the edge of their seats. One of them then described a perversion that was unique to Albert Fish and Albert Fish alone. On the number of occasions, he has taken roses and inserted the roses into his penis. Then he would stand before the mirror and do the Millie Rock. Huh? Let's get it. I'm Millie Rock on any block. We got it. He would play goodbye horses and put on lipstick. And he'll say, would you fuck me? Yeah. I'd fuck me. I'll, I'll fuck, fuck me you. hard. <clears throat> he would stand before the mirror and look at himself. He would get sexual gratification from that. Then he would eat the roses. <laughs> Some quality taste. Where them then went on to describe Fish's darkest turn with his psychosis. In his 50s, he became obsessed with the assumption that castrating and killing a young boy as a form of penance for his sins. Fish had always been a religious man, even dreaming as a young boy of becoming a minister. But during his 50s, he became obsessed with the idea of atonement and punishment. Before Grace Bud, he had tried to carry out a sacrificial plan. He had lured a 14-year-old boy into an isolated spot in the country where he intended to bind him, castrate him, whip him until he passed out, and then leave him to bleed to death. But before he could tie the boy up, the car passed by and spooked Albert. Immediately after, he saw Edward Bud's ad and was going to follow through with this plan but was immediately discouraged after seeing how grown up Edward was, which then he settled for Grace. But according to Wertham, because of Grace's prepubescent body, naked she looked like a boy, and while he was killing Grace, he imagined her as a boy, and that by beheading Grace, this was Fish's way of trying to symbolize a castration. Sick fuck. He is a sick fuck. Fish's religious mania was also the reason why he would shove the needles into his body as a symbol of atonement for his sins. He even tried to stick the needles into his testicles, but this proved to be too painful even for him. And then after the first try, he just said, fuck this, and never tried again. <laughs> but everywhere else. By now, it was late in the afternoon, but before the day ended, Dempsey wanted to make sure Wortham had a chance to testify on an important matter. Now, was anything said about cannibalism or eating human flesh? He told me for a long time he had been interested in the subject of cannibalism. He told me he would read with great pleasure all sorts of accounts where cannibalism had taken place. He told me he read about the Perry Expedition, where on a ship they had to kill three sailors and eat them to stay alive. He read other incidents like that, about explorers in Africa and the like. He also listened to the stories his brother told him about China, and that he himself was consumed with the desire to eat human flesh. He definitely told me that he ate the flesh of Grace Bud.
Wednesday morning, Wortham was back on the witness stand, and it was time for Dempsey's home run. He was to present the hypothetical question. Gallagher, the prosecutor, wanted to know the question beforehand. So Dempsey, Gallagher, and the judge roomed themselves and came out of the room two hours later. Two hours later? With Dempsey ready to ask Wortham his question. Because Gallagher's like, what what are you going to ask? Dempsey's like, no, 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 don't worry about it. I'm going to ask it. And Dempsey's and Gallagher's like, no, no, no. We need to know what the fuck you're going to ask so you don't pull out some bullshit. So they went into the room and they argued about it for two hours. That's some bullshit you're pulling, bro. (laughs) And finally, they came out after two hours and Dempsey asked Wortham his question. Now, doctor, assuming that on or about the 19th day of May 1870, a male child was born in Washington, the youngest of the 12 children on his father's side and the youngest of seven on his mother's side. Dempsey then went on to talk about Fisher's early life, about his boyhood, his time in the orphanage, to his life as a family man, and him being a devoted father. Then he went on to describing Anna Fish's desertion of Fish and the children and Fish's weird behavior that Fish's children observed of him. Dempsey kept talking about Fish's life and eventually arrived at the Bud murder itself, describing it in brutal detail. Then came the weird episodes of Fish's life, from his arrests to him writing his famous letters to his illegal marriages and the things that Albert Jr. had seen while living with Fish. Assume further, Doctor, that in the year 1934, the defendant was residing at 1883 Amsterdam Avenue and was seen in his bedroom jumping up and down, looking back at himself while he hit his behind with a paddle full of nails. On and on, the Dempsey's questions went, describing the letter he sent to the Buds, his arrests, confessions with obsessions with cannibalism, the clippings about the murders found in his belongings, the needles in his bodies, and the burn scars on his left butt cheek. The entire question took Dempsey over an hour to ask, which covered over 45 typed pages. It was almost 12.30 when Dempsey finally, finally reached the end bro if, so he if caught I was the, the fuck out of that question bro if I, if I were the one answering this question i'll be like what's the question again now doctor assuming the truth of the facts stated in the foregoing hypothetical question what in your opinion is the mental condition of this defendant today he is insane Imagine spending an hour to ask a fucking question only for the answer to be he's insane. <laughs> yeah. He's but, crazy. But yeah, he, he cray cray. But you know what would have been better? IDK. LOL, sure. LOL. Okay. 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 But he built this long winded question and he that question was just basically outlining Fish's life. Saying like hypothetically speaking. If a boy who was born in 1870... Let me start from the wait, beginning. On, where's Gallagher in this entire time? He was like, bro, cut the shit. He was. Gallagher was like, hey, yo, yo, we need to cut it. But the judge is like, you already knew the question. You agreed to it, motherfucker. You agreed to it. Which makes <laughs> you sense. You agreed to the bullshit-ass question. Which makes sense why, the, why, why it took them two hours to get out of that room. Ah. Uh. <laughs> so after lunch, Gallagher cross-examined Wortham. Asking him about Fish's ability to know the difference between right and wrong, 
and how Fisher's attempts to hide Grace's body after he killed her showed that he did know that what he had done was wrong. They went back and forth on the subject for the rest of the day that the judge ordered for an evening session as he wanted to have the case in the hands of the jury by Friday. Everyone was to come back after dinner at 7.30 to listen to Dempsey's last two witnesses. So Dr. Smith, Eli, and Henry Riley both corroborated with Wortham about Fish being insane. They testified about Fish's religious delusions, describing them as the old man's hallucinations. Riley explained that Fish often said he would see the face of Christ and sometimes see the lips of statues move, giving him messages. One of these messages being that he had to take a virgin and sacrifice her so that she shouldn't become a harlot. Dr. Smith confirmed that the whole killing of the brother girl took on the feel of a religious ritual to Fish. He also repeated what Fish had told him about the murder. He admitted that while kneeling over Grace's butt chest and choking the life out of her, he had two orgasms. On Thursday, March 21st, Gallagher's medical witnesses finally took the stand in which they described Fish as being abnormal but sane. Dr. Gregory maintained that Fish was no different from millions of people, that just because it's not common doesn't make it wrong. Dr. Gregory said he wouldn't call these people mentally sick. Sure, they weren't perfectly all right, but they were socially all right. Dr. Charles Lambert also took to the stand, which was spent defending his medical credentials to Dempsey. Dr. Lambert, he never had a formal education and acquired his education while working in prison for over 20 years, where he was the attending physician, in which Dempsey argued that being a physician didn't make him a psychiatrist. So one of the prosecutor's doctors wasn't really a doctor. He just worked in the prison as a physician. He just knows a guy who knows a guy that got on the job. Well, not even new guys. Like, imagine if I imagine if I worked at a clinic, right? And I was a nurse, but I didn't go to school as a nurse. But I worked at the clinic for twenty years, so I knew how to do everything. And when I when I went to court, that like, well, where'd you go to school? I'm like, I didn't go to school, but I learned everything from experience. And Dempsey's like, no, 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 no it doesn't count. It doesn't count. He didn't go to school. How the f- and he's a fucking doctor. He's not a psychiatrist. How the fuck does being a doctor? fucking mean you're a psychiatrist so Dempsey and Lambert they went back and forth until the judge intervened until Dempsey to move on (laughs) so the judge Dempsey just shut the fuck up let the man speak (laughs) so Dr. Lambert described the fish as an orderly man who was friendly and had confessed to having violated over 30 children Lambert declared fish as sane describing him as having psychopathic personality without a psychosis Dr. Lambert spent the rest of the day being cross-examined by Dempsey, being asked if drinking urine and eating feces was something a sane man to do, to which Lambert responded, yes, with him knowing very prominent figures in society who do the same thing. Oh, He said, sure, it's weird and gross, but they are still functioning members of society. So now it's Friday, March 22nd, the 10th and final day of the trial. Both legal teams spent an hour with their respective closing arguments. Dempsey delivered an eloquent speech explaining that in selecting the jury, he aimed for a group of mainly fathers because he believed that a jury made up of fathers could not convict a man of being a wonderful father of six children 
unless he was, in fact, an insane individual. Gallagher, on the other hand, his summation was just matter-of-factly. He just looked at the jury and told them that the facts were the facts and the facts were in front of them. He didn't need to persuade them because deep down they knew that Fish was in the wrong and he had to pay for what he had done. Dempsey's speech ended with an impassioned plea that was meant to impress the jurors to let them know that the wait or the decision was to come. I ask you to bear with me for a moment to tell me now each man answering in his own heart that you have heard all the evidence for the people and all the evidence for the defense. Tell me now, do you believe before God that Albert Fish was sane on June 3rd in 1928? Do you believe that on that day he knew the difference between right and wrong? Unless you believe that, gentlemen, if you later find him guilty, it will be on mere breath, not upon evidence. Recall the answer in your heart when you get to the jury room. Record that answer for when you cast those ballots for life or death. The voice of one man, gentlemen, saves Albert Fish's life. In the course of human nature, 10 of your 12 men will die in full possession of your reason and memory. When that hour comes, when the blood begins to congeal and that breath to fell, when death snaps one by one the strings of life, when you look back to the past and forward to judgment, Remember Albert Fish, that when he was helpless and defenseless and pleaded with you for his life, and you said, let him live or let him die. And if you said, let him die, may he who breathed into nostrils the breath of life judge you more mercifully than you judge this maniac. At 8.27 p.m., not even an hour later after the men were excused, the 12 men jury filed back into the courtroom having agreed on their verdict. And how do you find the defendant? Guilty or not guilty? We find the defendant guilty as charged in the indictment. Yeah! <sighs> the reporter, hey, shit, bum. The reporters hurried to the nearest phones to file the news that Albert Fish had been found guilty of murder in the first degree, a verdict that carried a mandatory sentence of death in the electric chair. Fish slumped in his chair after hearing the verdict. Formal sentencing was pushed to Monday morning at 10 a.m. Fish's two daughters, who were in the hallway, burst into tears after hearing the news, but while both the Fish's sons didn't even flinch. And they walked past and just... They just bumped Even the bird. They just bumped fucking <laughs> fish. So they bumped them shoulder to shoulder. Move, bitch. Mrs. Bud was happy for once, claiming good for him when talking about the <laughs> death penalty. Wait, was this the Peglick bitch? No, this no, was, no, no, no. Oh, Mrs. Bud. Mrs. Mrs. Bud. Yeah, okay. I'm tripping. I'm tripping. I'm tripping. The world's best actor. <laughs> Edward Bud felt the same way, claiming that even though this wasn't going to bring back his baby sister, it was what fish deserved. Mr. Bud was the one who was most visibly affected by the verdict. Claiming he had a funny feeling when he heard the verdict. What? Later that night, a report began to circulate that Fish's attitude towards the outcome was beginning to change. He still believed the verdict wasn't right, but he was quoted with saying... What do he say? What do he say? What a thrill it would be to die in the electric chair. 
It will be the supreme thrill. The only one I haven't tried. The headline celebrating the news of Fish's sentence seemed to be the fitting end to such a horrible event. But just as we come to learn throughout Fish's life, more shocks were always just around the corner. Damn. Fish would be on the front pages, but for his new confessions. The first one came on Sunday night, March 24th, in the warden's office. Fish admitted that he had kidnapped and killed four-year-old Billy Gaffney in February 1927. That was uh, the officer's son? No, Billy Gaffney was the little kid who was playing in the hallway. Remember, it was Billy Gaffney and another kid. Oh, in the apartments. In the apartments. And then an older kid came by. They're they're the ones that that made up the name the Gray Man, right? No, the Boogie Man. The Boogie Man. This is what the little little boy, the, the Boogie Man. Yeah. Fish had written a letter to Dempsey describing the details of that murder, which, if one were to believe, the carnage was head and shoulders above the bud case. There is a public dumping ground. All kinds of junk had been thrown there for years. I would admit that the mortar man who had ID'd me getting off his car with the small boy was correct. I can tell you at the time I was looking for a specific place to do the job. Not satisfied, I brought him to the dumps. There is a house there that stands alone. I took the gaffing boy there, stripped him naked, and tied his hands and feet, and gagged him with a piece of dirty rag I picked out of the dump. I then burned his clothes, threw his shoes in the dump, and then I walked back home. The next day, about 2 p.m., I whipped his bear behind until the blood ran down his legs. I cut off his ears, nose, slit his mouth from ear to ear, gouged his eyes out. He was dead by then. I stuck the knife in his belly and held my mouth to his body to drink his blood. I picked up four old potato sacks and gathered a pile of stones. Then I cut him up. I put his nose and ears and a few slices of his belly inside a suitcase. Then I cut him through the middle of his body, just below the belly button. Then threw his legs about two inches behind his behind. I put his meat in my suitcase with a lot of paper. I cut off the head, feet, arms, hands, and the legs below the knee. I put those in sacks and weighed them down with stones and threw them down into the water where they sank. I came home with my meat. I had the front of his body I liked the best his monkey and peewees and the nice little fat behind to roast in the oven and eat. I made a stew out of his ears, nose, pieces of his face, and belly. I put onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt, and pepper. It was good. Then I split the cheeks of his behind open. I cut off his monkey and peewees and washed them first. I put strips of bacon on each cheek of his behind and put them in the oven. Then I picked four onions, and when the meat had roasted for 20 minutes, I poured gravy over and put in the onions. After two hours, it was nice and brown, cooked through. I never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as a sweet, fat little ass did. I ate every bit of the meat in about four days. His little monkey was as sweet as a nut, but his peewees, I could not chew. Threw them into the toilet.
Mrs. Gaffney, after eight years, finally, finally learned what happened to her son. But she, re- but she refused to believe that this was how her son died. After this account hit the newspapers, she still continued to set a place for him at the family table. Damn. She insisted. She insisted that something, somewhere, was telling her that her son was still alive. Oh no, lady. Monday came, and on March 25th, Fish was sentenced to death in the electric chair at Sing Sing in the week of April 29th. Fish was escorted to prison and given the convict number 90,272. Was led to the death house. But before the day was over, Fish dropped another bombshell. But wait, there was more. He admitted that in 1934... He had also murdered eight-year-old Francis McDonald, the son of the Staten Island police officer. Fish confessed that he had lured the little boy into the woods, strangled him with the child's own suspenders, and was about to start dismembering the body when he thought he heard someone approaching. And then he just dipped. The following morning, the Daily Mirror declared that Fish was officially the most vicious child slayer in criminal history. Fish made the front page with the headline reading, Parents Will Breathe Easier. Three days after his transfer on Thursday, March 28th, Albert Fish was served a pork chop dinner in his cell. And when the tray was removed, the guard did not notice that Fish had kept one of the pork bones. And during the night, Fish sharpened the bone against the floor of his cell and used it the next day as he carved an 8-inch cross on his belly. They managed to take the bone away before he did any more harm to himself. And when the warden asked him why he did what he did, Fish just responded with, I was in pain from the needles in my body, and I thought I could maybe relieve it this way. He's like, yeah, this shit hurts. Let me hurt something else. Like, what? Yeah, get distracted. After a few failed attempts by Dempsey to overturn the conviction of Fish, On Thursday, January 16th, Albert Fish ate his last meals. Remember, he was sentenced till April 19th was supposed to be his day of execution. Yeah. But Dempsey tried to reverse the conviction. And he tried it so much that his death sentence was pushed all the way to January. Damn. So Fish stayed on death row for like an extra fucking nine months. He's eating his last meal every single day since then. (laughs) Dempsey didn't want to trick that L in his record, bro. Damn. For lunch, Albert had a T-bone steak, and for dinner, he had a roast chicken. Around 10.30 p.m., Reverend Anthony Peterson arrived to pray with Albert. While they were praying, at around 11 p.m., two guards entered the cell. One of them ripped open the patent leg of Fish's right foot. Then he was escorted out, followed by the Reverend, toward the execution chamber. It was now 11.06 p.m. Fish didn't react to seeing the electric chair like many men had done before him. He just seemed like someone who just didn't want to be there. He was lowered onto the chair and for Fish's last moments alive, his face was paler than ever, which was then immediately covered by the black death mask that was placed on him. After fastening the chin strap, the executioner made sure Fish was secure, then he stepped to the control panel. 
There are rumors and legends about Fish's last moments. Stories would circulate for years that Fish's body, because of all the needles in his body, produced a burst of blue sparks when the electricity was activated. This did not happen. There was no pyrotechnic show. This wasn't a Ramstein concert. Ramstein. What did happen was that Fish died like other men. His body surging as the current hit him, his neck bulged and his fist turned to fiery red. Then his body limped dead. At 11.09, Albert Fish, the boogeyman, the gray man, the werewolf of Wisteria, was finally pronounced dead. He did ass. You think he climaxed during the pain? I you think he what? did. He did. I'm pretty sure he, he walked did. out hard as fuck. You know fuck. what? Either that, but they didn't want to give him that win. They didn't want to give him that either win. Either that or like he was he was about to, but he he died before he he even got a whiff of anything. And that is the end of our Albert Fish series. Hooray! Fucking hooray! Oh my god, dude, I am so fucking glad this shit is over, man. It's crazy how, like, I thought it was just Grace Bud, but Grace Bud was the reason why all this happened. Like, why he got caught. Yeah, Grace Bud was the reason, which is why which is why I'm focused on that. On right, her, yeah. right. Uh, on that. Which is a downbringing. Of right, right. Yeah. But, like, this motherfucker was out and about. Remember what Wortham said? He's like, I, for me, I believe this motherfucker raped over a hundred children. Yeah. At the very least. <sighs> My dude had a huge track record. Well, yeah. I mean, they said, what, he would move from city to city if it was like something small, but it was something big. He moved <laughs> state. Most How many state. times did he move states? 23 times. 23 times. Yeah, dude. So it's like, fuck. It's Who crazy. You- it's crazy. If, you, if this was Celebrity Deathmatch. Okay. <laughs> Fuck. Who would win? Okay. Albert Fish or uh-huh. Gilda Ray? What? Gilda why is Ray? that even a question? Yeah, why Gilda Ray? Remember, Gilda Ray killed the shitload of children too and he raped the living shit out of them. You know what? Oh, you know you're what? talking about like actual like who did worse? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I literally thought oh, like, 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 <laughs> yeah, they, they would like, fight. <laughs> well, I mean, they'll fight, but that, that that's why they're fighting to see who's the biggest piece of shit. Who's the bigger, who's, who's the bigger monster? Yeah. Gilda Ray or Albert Fish? Who do you think is the bigger monster? I mean, they're both shitty. They're both shitty humans. Um, when I, I got- guess I guess Gilda Ray, because at least this guy had, like they said he was abnormal, but he was sane. Yeah. And although he was a piece of shit murderer, you know he still cared for his kids. Like I feel like he had some. He had like he had like some restraint. Yeah. At like, least. Yeah, there's like Gil- still some human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like Gilda Ray. Was Gilda just Ray, like, he was, he was just a piece of shit all around. But remember, Gilda Ray was good up until Joan of Arc died. He fought for the church. That's- he, you know, what I mean, I mean, he was still a piece of shit throughout that 
throughout that time, but he wasn't a raping, child murdering piece of For shit. For most of his life. Yeah, he was just like a cocky, rich piece of shit. Are we talking about quantity-wise, Gilda Ray? We were talking about like lifetime-wise, I guess Albert Fish. Because I felt like, what, Gilda Ray just snapped, right? Yeah, after Joan of Arc did. He, he just yeah. lost it and became crazy. He's like, fuck that. He was created from child at the age of seven was his first. Well, I mean, remember, Gilda Ray, Gilda Ray was created by his grandfather, too. His yeah. grandfather ignored him. His grandfather made him kill the little kids. Remember when they would sword fight? Yeah. So they were kind of molded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, his molding was worse, though, because at least fucking, at least Gilda Ray, when he was molded as a piece of shit little kid, he was done. Like he was, it was being done in his castle. You know what I mean? Like he was still rich as shit. Albert Fish was, he was poor. As orphan. Sh- he was a fucking boy prostitute. <laughs> like slanging ass at the age of ten. Slanging ass. Yeah. yeah. So I'm gonna pick D. All of above. I don't know. Like what? that's that's what kept that's, right. that's what kept coming back to mind. Like the uh, the parallels between like the Gilda Ray and like the monster of fucking yeah. Albert Fish. It's mental instability. I don't know. It was crazy. How, how long did Gilda Ray last for? His killings? Well, I mean, like, what? How long did oh, live his for? reign of? No, uh, how long did he live for? I think he was in his forties when he died. Yeah. Wait, Gilda Ray was the one who who was like, "Hey, send me your children so I could train them." And then, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, that's more of a piece of shit, though. Like he, he had power to do it. You get me? He had influence. Yeah, he was royalty. Yeah. This guy. He was giving kids raisins and leaving them to <laughs> fucking raisins, bro. You want some raisins? Oh my god! Leaving them to the woods. The fucking whistle. I mean, the whistle. The whistle. The grass. Want some raisins? Oh, from, do it. from Family Guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do it. I can't do it. I just I could just do the noise without saying the words. Just the say the word and then you'll do the whistle. And go. Would you want some raisins? Already. You want some raisins? Ten seconds late, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Again, <laughs> not King Hop. No, but like after he died, remember he died boop, at eleven. Boop, boop. After Albert Fish died, yeah. remember he died at eleven oh nine. Yeah. At midnight, a reporter went to go knock at the Buds' place and to let them know the news. Yeah. And the whole thing ended the way it started. At midnight, a reporter showed up at the Buds' apartment saying, "Did you hear the news?" Remember the first time is. They caught the guy who killed the kid. Yeah, and this time it was midnight. The guy that killed the guy that killed your kid was just killed. And yeah. when he showed up, Mrs. Bud just opened the door and she just looked at him. And in the background, you just hear um, Albert. Yeah. But the husband's like, "What happened?" She's like, "Oh, reporters here just told me that fish was killed." Yeah, and the husband was just like, "Okay, we'll just come back to bed." She just closed the door on the reporter and went back to bed. She just like they're just over it. Yeah. Yeah. Well. And Albert Fish's family throughout the whole trial, they didn't talk to the buds. His kids, the only it only happened once. Like somewhere in the third or fourth day, one of his daughters went up to Mrs. Family. Bud and said, I am so sorry for what my father did. Now do you think they didn't talk to him because they were ashamed of what their yeah, father fuck did? Yeah. Okay, okay, oh, okay, absolutely. Okay. Fuck yeah. So that's my well, dad. I, I, I was just making sure I was making that's sure. My dad. Yeah, but that is the whole story of Albert Fish. Well, not the whole story, but that's the majority. But that's like yeah, the, that's, the, the biggest chunk. It's a story. Of the story. There's another the book that's man. out that I fucking regret not buying. That I didn't find out until after we started this series, where they have all these, all the letters like that. It was 
It's all the official documents that they used in the in the trial. In the trial. Those more detailed things, all the confessions that Albert did. Because yeah. right here, just the book that we have, which is the book, which is the source of today's episode and series, is called "The Range: the, the Shocking True Story of America's Most Fiendish Killer" by Harold Schechter. She just summarizes some. I mean, Harold Harold just summarizes some of the passages. The other book is just official documents. Oh, okay. So you can read the actual word for word. We could have actually read the 45-page fucking eloquence question that, that fucking Dempsey yeah, asked and took over an hour. The fuck so, out of so doctor, question. what do you think? Okay. Okay. LOL. Just left on red. <laughs> what do you think? It says red. <laughs> it's just red. You see three dots. Yeah. <laughs> so I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it more than I did because I didn't enjoy this episode. At this point, you didn't enjoy any episode, Moses. You hate every episode we did. I don't hate the Gilda Ray ones. <laughs> I, don't hate, I don't hate the Gilda Ray ones. We'll go back to him. We'll listen to the end. I'm glad I'm done doing we'll, this. We'll check the downloads. All right, downloads? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll check the downloads. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty uh, sure you dreamt about that, bitch. I know you went back and dreamed about that's Not that, about that's, how he killed. That's what the dream was. It yeah. wasn't even about any of the episodes. Yeah, it was just like, downloads. Downloads numbers, the lowest numbers of all time. Yo, DeRay series. Oh, fuck y'all. <laughs> We're getting messages. Hey, your shit's whack, son. <laughs> no, nah, it's, it's a dope ass series. So thank you guys. If you guys like, if you, <laughs> you guys, like, if you guys like, yeah, he's just like showing the messages. See, it's proof. People like it, bitch ass. If you guys like those episodes, zero friends, zero follows. It's just one following. It's following him. It's fucking him. If you guys like those fucking episodes, comment on just comment on any of our pictures so I so I can show these pricks that those that those episodes. Yeah, yeah, we're the pricks. Okay, all right. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this series. It was it's fun. I mean, I knew about Albert Fish. I'd known him for a while already. And like I said, I didn't want to do true crime episodes. But I'm like, fuck it. It's Halloween. Let's just might as well just start one or whatever. Did you guys know about Albert Fish before starting this episode? No. Nope. This episode series? Nope. Yeah. Not nope. a thing. Well, maybe because I'm not really a big fan of true a crime. Killer, I, or like I don't know serial are. killers. Like, I don't know if you are. I'm I'm not, not, yeah, I'm not. My so girlfriend is why. a diehard fucking like serial killer. So did she hear... Did she know about Albert Fish? Yeah, she did, because she would tell yeah. me. Okay, yeah. so I'm she, assuming... She bought a whole fucking coloring book of, like... Serial colors. Serial huh? colors. That's not crazy I'm like, at all. I'm like, baby, you okay? You all right? She, no, hold on, hey, hold bro, on. you better watch your ass in that Thanksgiving, bro. Watch you, are you okay? <laughs> are, you, are you okay? Do you need help? Are you sending SOS? Uh -huh. Blink if you want. Yeah, blink. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, you go into that weird-ass, scary-ass cabin. Was it her, was oh, her oh, idea oh, oh. for this Thanksgiving? Oh, yeah, routine? was her idea? It was her idea. Um, oh, body disposals. That's true. <laughs> your body's gonna get chopped. Uh, she can stick some needles up your ass. Don't kill me. She's gonna fucking fill his asshole with like cotton balls. And, and she's gonna hear the comment that you said about fucking roses up. Uh, fucking whatever the fuck you I said. I don't know what comment he's talking about. I don't know what comment. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. What comment? I don't know what comment. Shut up. <laughs> shut up. Yeah, so I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this series. It was weird. Reading over and over again about this child, about this motherfucker raping and eating children. You know, I wish there was fucking cameras back then. You wanted to see this shit? No, 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 no. I just want to see, like, what freaking Albert Fish's reaction was after every retelling of all this shit. Like, what, like, what, what did he do? What did he look like? Oh, he was... 
<laughs> no. He, he gave the... <laughs> they described him while he was sitting down in, in the court while they were giving his testimonies. He was just slumped over in his chair just staring at them without an expression. No reaction or anything. No rea- the only time he got in reaction was when Dempsey... Uh, did that whole hour question like trying to save him when he said Albert when he saw Albert Fish Jr. He's just like, like the only time is like the only time Albert Fish made any move or did anything yeah. that showed any type of emotion was the time where he gave up that eloquent that and when they gave him the conviction. Yeah, but oh, look yeah, at yeah. that fucking image he has there. Look, he's 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 strapped up in an electric chair. Look, no emotion, bro. Hey, bro, bro check him off. He has a bulge right there, bro. Is yeah, he hard? I don't know. Probably one of the, the you know needle. you know he got a chub. You know it's probably one of chub. the needles are sticking out. You know he's not gonna die with the floppy, bro. Come on, and that's funny. Like floppy or a dummy gummy, dummy, dummy gummy, gummy. a floppy, whatever the fuck you want to call it. But he he has a chub and or something higher, bro. It's funny how the way that he described him going into the the room, he he just looked uncomfortable. Yeah, like he just he's like, like be here, yeah, I don't be here. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else is like no, take me out, no. He's like. Like, oh, fuck, do, do I have to? Yeah, but um, I hope you again for like the tenth time. I hope you guys like. I hope you guys enjoyed the series. It was like a fucking Mexican parents trying to say goodbye. Yeah, at a party. <laughs> they just, every time they say goodbye, they start a conversation with somebody else. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the series as well. Um, if you guys can, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you guys go to our Instagram page at Weird History Irritos Pod, you can follow the link that's on our. Instagram page for you guys to rate and review us. Um, follow our Instagram, Weird History Tells Pod, while you're there, so you guys can look at all these pictures, so you guys can see Albert Fish strapped up in the electric chair, the house where Albert Fish killed um, Grace, Grace, Grace. Bud, and yeah. all the other wonderful bullshit that we talk about throughout our episodes. You can find pictures and videos of it on our Instagram at Weird History Tells Pod. And again, uh, thank you guys so much. And if you guys don't have anything else to add, we are the Weird History Eerie Tells Pod. Mm, I like that piss and shit. Mm.